Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name's Tim. Like Ken said, uh, let's pray for God's help as we come to his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak to us today and every day by your word. As we listen, help us to be more and more grasping what it means to be people that are knowing and following Jesus with our whole lives. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, again, as Ken said, this week we're starting off a new series. We've been going through Acts again this year for the first part of the year. Um, But now we're coming to a series where we're asking a question for the next nine weeks. What is a disciple? We're a church that's all on about proclaiming Christ and making disciples. But what exactly is it that we're making? What are disciples? Some of us have grown up in churches or have been Christians for decades, and we're really used to the word. But what does the Bible actually have to say about what being a disciple of Jesus is? What does it look like for ourselves to be disciples? What does it look like to be inviting others and growing them into being disciples? That's what it's all about for these next few weeks. Now, as we get into it, I reckon most of us love before and after stories, transformation stories. That's why there's been season after season of The Block and Grand Designs, The Biggest Loser, although it's finished recently, MasterChef, and anything where there's this transformation in someone becoming or something becoming something they never were before. I've said it before, but I love on Instagram, Barry at the back, his before and after pictures of all the repair work that he does and maintenance. It's really satisfying. And I think that's true of all of us. We love, whether it's buildings or bodies, in the environment or skills, to see transformation in places or people. Seeing change inspires us and reassures us. We think that we could do this. We think that this could be us. The passage we've had read today in Ephesians 2, it's all about the before and after story of every disciple of Jesus. The disciples are saved by Jesus. It's something personal and yet more than us. It's at times uncomfortable and humbling, but it's ultimately cause for great joy and celebration as we reflect on what God has done. So let's get into it. Um, This chapter, it's partway through Ephesians. Uh, Ephesians is a letter written to a church that's in modern-day Turkey by Paul. And this first half is all about um, him concentrating on everything that the Father has done and achieved in Jesus for his people and for his glory. The second half is all about what you do in response to that. But where we're sitting today is all about what God's done. And so it will make sense as we go through in verses 1 to 10 that there's this before picture of Christians, there's an after picture, but the biggest focus is in the middle of what God does to change people and give them life. But let's start with the before picture. And it's a stark one that without Christ, we're all dead. Verses 1 to 3 say that, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, 
carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I think Paul here is painting a picture similar to what we see in horror movies. You see people blissfully living their lives in ignorance of anything that might happen, and then slowly the music creeps in, the scenes of what might happen start to flick on and off, and you know what's coming. These people are living and breathing, but soon enough, they're actually dead. They're already dead. It's a certainty. This picture is the same as the picture of our world. The world around us is teeming with life, lives of busy people doing busy things, but when viewed with the right lens, it's instead a helpless picture of a world of death. Without Jesus, we are all dead. Now, the passage goes into what this death is, and it's primarily to do with sin. Verse 1 shows it's our trespasses and sin that we are dead in. The sin picture is familiar to most of us. We're used to thinking of sin as rejection or ignorance of God and all that he does and he has purposed in the world and for us. But what is it actually that we're listening to when we are sinning? This is a picture of people following something else instead of God. And there's these threefold picture of what that actually looks like to be following other things than God's. First up, in verse 2, sin looks like following the course of the world. This is picking up on the idea of society and structures and human authority all around us. It's culture and government's expectations about what is good. It's the general way and shape and flow of everything in the world. Without Jesus, sin looks like being caught up in following everything near and around us. We shape our lives on morality about what is around us, what the world says and values. This aspect of sin means being swept away by whatever we see and experience and taste of what the world tells us we should be doing. It's the first lens of sin. The second lens is that sin looks like following the prince of the power of the air. And that's a really weird title, but I think it's talking about Satan. There's an active and sinister and evil spiritual dimension of sin. We listen, instead of God, to Satan's lies about what is good. Without Jesus, we're under his authority and power in the world. He's been at work in people's hearts since the beginning. Since the fall in Genesis 3, people listened to his deception, twisting people's hearts away from God's truth to a lie. Rejecting God's goodness and his will looks like affirming Satan and his evil. It's beyond just the human powers and authorities around us. There's this spiritual dimension of Satan's lies in the sins that we're caught up in in life now. The third and final aspect of sin that's in verse 3 is the inner dimension. Sin looks like us following the passions of our flesh. This is listening to our own base desires. With Jesus, we're seeking, without Jesus, we're seeking to serve ourselves and ourselves alone. We do whatever gives us the most pleasure 
or control or honour from the vantage point of the world around us. But it's not actually a picture of control or power. It's of powerlessness. It's of lack of control. Instead of being human, it's a picture of slavery to our own desires. It's more like animals than people. Even in our interactions in service of others, our selfish intent seeps through and twists things for our own gain. This is an expansive and confronting but real view of sin, whether it's in listening to the world, listening to Satan, listening to ourselves and our base desires. All of it is in deep opposition to God and it has consequences. That's why verse 3 finishes with this severe pronouncement that all of mankind without salvation in Jesus are children of wrath. This isn't saying that we are wrathful people, though that's certainly true. It's saying that all of humanity, including us, without God's intervention is facing his judgment for sin. Everyone has been caught up in the snares of sin in all these dimensions. There's no one without excuse. There's no one that is innocent. Without Jesus, everyone is dead. Everyone needs salvation. But remember, Paul's writing this to Christians. He's writing it to people who have already experienced a change from death to life. Why is he bringing this up? Why isn't he just focusing on the good things, the true and living things that we experience in faith in Jesus? I think he's doing this to remind them, and this counts for us today, of just how catastrophic their problem was and how great a problem remains for anyone who doesn't know Jesus. Dead people need saving, but dead people can't save themselves. There's nothing they can do. Is this truly the way we see the world around us or even ourselves without Jesus? I think if we're honest, we don't really. We see smiles of lives of joy and happiness and success. We hear stories of lives that are fulfilled and satisfying. We hug our family and friends and we feel the warmth of life and the pulse of life. But too easily we ignore the whiffs of rot and decay of sin in the brokenness, in the relationships around us, our society and government and the evils that go unpunished. Or we think it's something we can simply fix with enough time or effort. So many human developments are trying to be done through humanity rising together to fix something. This passage reminds us that we need a new vantage point for seeing ourselves in the world. Not our natural eyes that see it as the society does, or see it through Satan's lies, or through our selfish desires. We need to see ourselves from God's vantage point because without Jesus, I am dead in sin. Without Jesus, we are all dead in sin. Everyone we see around us is dead in sin. It's a stark picture, but it's an important one. But in God's kindness, the story doesn't end there. These first few verses are all about remembering our problem. But verses 4 to 7 are about remembering what God has done about it. 
Let me read. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It's only God who offers us the gift of salvation life in Jesus. If verses 1 to 3 are focusing in on us and what we're like without Jesus, 4 to 7 show us what God is like and what he's done for every person in Jesus. They show us what he offers to anyone who would be a disciple of Jesus. And what he's like is deeply connected with what he does. It comes up again and again and again in this section. In contrast to our sin, he shines through in his great and awesome character. We see it in verse 4, in his great mercy. His mercy means not punishing us as we deserve. He has every right to. He is the one and true and holy and righteous God. It's what would be fair for us. But in his mercy, he doesn't. It's in verse 4 again, we see his great love with which he has loved us. Despite our sin, he still loved us. This isn't like the kind of love we express. It's not like when our friends or family or pets are just rat bags and we have occasional moments of redemption that make us think, oh, okay, I can love this person. Or we have memories of good from the past that make us go, they can change, they can be like what they used to be. There's nothing lovely about us without Jesus. Nothing deserving of God's affections. And yet God, in his great love, has still loved us. This is amazing. Finally, in verses 5 and 7, God is gracious. His grace is seen in offering a free gift of salvation, even when we didn't ask for it or deserve it. If God wasn't gracious, there would be no salvation for us. We were so dead in sin that we didn't even want his salvation. And we were so dead that we could never accomplish any requirements if he was to put them into receiving this salvation for us. God's character of graciousness is essential for our salvation. It's clear how good God is in reading these verses. In stark contrast to our sinful condition, God is great and amazing. And verse 5 and 6 show us what this salvation that he's promised actually looks like. God's salvation raises disciples from death to life with Jesus. It's really helpful. We've just been thinking through Easter this past week of Jesus' death and resurrection and the great celebration that is for Christians. And I think you'll notice as you read through these verses that we're included in that with Jesus. I think it's us with him in his resurrection. It's us with him in his ascension to heaven. And it's us with him in his enthronement with God. With Christ, we too are made alive. Dead sinners are given life. This is life that only God could give in Jesus. And it's life that's no longer facing judgment and life that experiences forgiveness of sins, all because of the atoning work of Jesus on the cross. 
With Christ, we are also raised to heaven. We join with Jesus in his ascension, and we no longer belong to this world and its powers and authorities. Disciples of Jesus are people with heavenly homes and new heavenly minds and hearts that think the things of God instead of the world. And finally, with Christ, we're seated with God. As Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, so we are seated with God. We, as undeserving as we are, share in his glory and the intimate access to the Father. We sit with the ruler of the world as his saved people brought into his family. You see, at the core to this new salvation life is our union with Christ. And that's a big enough topic that we're actually going to do that as a separate week uh, in this series. But for now... Yeah, we've seen that God's loving mercy and grace is what he comes out of in saving Christians by bringing them from death to life in Christ. But what does he do it for? We're in election season right now, and the government suddenly starts promising and doing a lot of things that are a bit out of character. They change their mind on staff, they give things in key electorates, and it always leaves us wondering why they're doing it. Is it to help us forget something they've already done? Is it to help convince us to vote for them? Is it to help distract us from even thinking about the opposition? Whether they're in opposition or in government, there's always these questions we have of why they're doing these things. And I think it's the same with God. I've many, heard many people ask, why does God save us? What's the point? We have an answer in Ephesians And it starts in chapter 1. Ephesians 1 has a theme of God's marvellous salvation plan from beginning of the world that leads to the praise of his glory. That's a phrase that comes up three times, either to the praise of his glorious grace or to praise of his glory. And it's the same idea in this passage in verse 7. Through his saving work, God shows the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God does this to declare his glory and goodness to the world that we've already seen, but needs to know it as well. He's bringing people to see him for who he really is and rightly praise him as the only God deserving of all honour and glory. And I think this helps put ourselves into the right perspective God's purpose in saving Christians is beyond just his work in you and me. Our problem is massive. We need saving. Everyone needs saving, but it's not the focus of the story. It's not about our worthiness or our merit. Ultimately, God's salvation is to show how amazing he is to the world. It's only in Jesus that people can be freed from sin and judgment and made alive And it's totally right to not want anyone we know to remain as they were or are without Jesus. That's a really good motivation to speak the gospel to people. But as well, we need to think of this perspective. We need to see desiring God's honour and glory and character to shine in the world and the lives of everyone who sees and hears his work. Only a God like the one that we've seen can be worthy of this sort of glory a God full of love and mercy and kindness and grace expressed towards his people. This is the God we know and grow to love as disciples of Jesus. Our salvation ultimately isn't about us. It's about pointing to our God as the great and awesome God of the world. 
How is it then that we receive this salvation? The last three verses show that and what the life going forward is afterwards. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. These verses are showing us that disciples of Jesus are saved by grace through faith for good works. Paul's repeating his ideas a bit in this section, especially you'll see that in verses 8 and 9. We didn't do this. It's the gift of God. It's not our work, so we can't boast. Salvation comes only by grace through faith in the gospel, trusting the good news that Jesus is king. Nothing more, nothing less. Now, I've heard some people really struggle with this idea. It makes it sound like salvation isn't by works, but isn't faith a work? Sometimes we think of faith as something we're striving and struggling in, as something that we do profoundly in our salvation. But this passage makes it clear that salvation in its entirety is a gift from God himself. This includes every part of it and includes our faith. Remember that we're all dead without Christ. Dead people can't save themselves. Without him, we're still ensnared in the rich and universal reality of sin. Salvation is God's work in us, and that includes faith. All of our salvation, including faith, is a gift from God, not a work from us. If we relied on a work from us, we would never get there the good news of the gospel. So again, why does this matter for the people Paul is writing to in his church? They already know this. They've come from here. They're saved this way. It's the basics. Why do they have to hear it again? I think it's again reminding them of where they were and how that really changed because that is the paradigm and the core to being a follower of Jesus. We and they were undeserving. They were dead. The new life and salvation they have now is nothing about how good they were. They now enjoy a greater, new and better status, but it's not because they were better before. Instead of making them say, look at me as a person of God, better say, look at Jesus. Look at how good he is as the saviour who brings life for his people. It's the same for us today. God is our gracious saviour. We're not the special ones or the deserving ones. When we look at people around us, we're tempted to think, gosh, I've been speaking the gospel to that person for years. How can they not understand? How can they not get it like I did? But we wouldn't have it either without God's intervention in us. We look at people with terrible and obvious sin and we think that that's really not the sort of person God should save. He should save people like us. Should God really save a murderer, an abuser, someone who's obviously done more terrible things than me? But thinking that way is forgetting who we truly are and the only reason that changed. Every disciple of Jesus was a dead and wretched sinner who's been saved to life in Jesus. There's no room for boasting for saved sinners as they follow Jesus. 
But God's salvation doesn't just save us from sin. He doesn't just take us and stop us walking in the wrong direction and leave us idly. We're not saved by works, but we are saved for works. That's how the passage ends. We're God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Instead of walking in sin and trespasses from before, the picture of disciples of Jesus are people now saved and walking in good works. Christians are a new creation from God. It's a fundamental change that's been given to them of new hearts and new minds and desires that are wanting to live pleasing and honouring God. We're to live in obedience to the rule of Jesus. We're saved from walking in the death of sin to lives walking in good works. But what do these good works look like? On one level, the disappointing answer is this passage isn't about that. The second half of Ephesians is all about that, chapters 4 to 6. How do you live in response to all that God has done that Paul describes in chapters 1 to 3? So on one level, it's not about it. And we'll be covering aspects of that later in future weeks. But there is a focus here for good works, and it's about their plan and their presence. The way we live for God isn't some mysterious thing. We don't become Christians and then spend the rest of our lives stressing about searching and finding the mystery about what it is to follow Jesus. If you're a Christian, God didn't just plan to save you from before the beginning of the world, like Paul says in chapter 1. He's also planned out your new life as a new creation following Jesus. It's a life that's shaped by the truth of his word. Instead of the lies of the world or the lies of Satan or ourselves and our desires, and it's a lifelong thing. We can't fit in everything in nine weeks about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus and following him for decades to come. Being a Christian isn't just about conversion, it's a lifetime of being a disciple of Jesus, someone that follows him and loves and seeks to know him and make him known to the world. We're saved for good works, and those good works shape the whole rest of our lives. There's two quick ways we can get this wrong. The first one, and this is the way I got it wrong for years before I was a Christian, is that we get the order wrong. We think works first, then salvation. In my warped understanding, I thought Christianity and its message was all about reaching the height of God and his glory and being accepted that way. Paul here is saying, no, without salvation, none of our works are good. With, it's only being made alive with Christ that we can walk in a way that pleases God. Salvation first, then works. Don't get the order wrong. The second way we get it wrong often is we get the purpose wrong. This is what some people might call cheap grace, and it's the idea that our lives don't have to change as a result of God's salvation work. We can just relax, not have to worry about the sin and struggle that we still have because it's all sorted, it's all done. Again, this passage is saying, no. If the life of someone that's following Jesus keeps continuing and continuing to look exactly the same as their life beforehand, 
it really doesn't sound like the new life that we've heard about here. Disciples walking in step with Jesus ought to look more and more like him with time. And God's purpose isn't just to leave us how we were or simply stop us from sinning. It's to grow us in rightly living under God in working for him and his glory. Disciples of Jesus are saved by grace through faith for good works. Along the way, I've tried to step through some of the ways this impacts us still today. But before we finish, let me put together again how some of these parts of our story affect us still as disciples of Jesus. First thing I think is clear is that our story ought to humble us. The first part of our story is true for everyone in the world, whether you're a disciple of Jesus or not. Most of us think we're all right. We're so aware of our failings, especially when it's in front of people, but overall we've given life a fair go. The world is constantly telling us to look beyond our failures and to see our unique greatness and contribution to the world that would be greatly missed if it wasn't there. And there's some truth to that, but we can't kid ourselves. Without Jesus, we're dead and facing judgment. Without Jesus, all the things we do that we see as good works are like filthy rags before God. Becoming a disciple of Jesus means admitting your total reliance on Jesus for life and salvation in humility for the rest of your life. It's not just a once-off thing. It's not just a prayer you do. It's something that we keep continuing in for the rest of our lives as Christians. If this is something you've never gone, then God is saying through his word here that you need to look at yourself for who you truly are. If we see ourselves this way as dead sinners facing judgment, then our only hope is clinging on humbly to the salvation and life offered in Jesus for us. The story of who we are ought to humble ourselves before God as people totally reliant on his salvation in Jesus. But second, I think this story frees us. So many people in the world are constantly spending their lives searching for lasting answers to problems. I think for people around my age, uh, in their late 20s, it's really common for you to work only a bit more than two years in every job you're in before switching to somewhere new that will be finally that source of satisfaction or enough money to make you happy or enough to live in a way that you want. But tragically, without Jesus, no one finds anything that sticks. They fling from thing to thing, finding acceptance or purpose that's fragile and fleeting, that never lasts. The salvation life offered in Jesus is a beautiful thing because it's not achieved by us. The salvation that is offered to disciples of Jesus means that we can be confident and assured in this salvation. It's not something that's the start of some journey that goes well at the beginning, but it's full of death traps and puzzles that never we, we don't know what to do at every turn. All that we need for salvation is already achieved in Jesus and offered by grace through faith. We simply trust in Jesus' completed work and know that we are secure with God. He makes in us new hearts and minds that learn to love him more and more when we failed to change before, before we knew Jesus. He doesn't just leave us how we were, 
he changes us into a new creation of his people. This is hugely freeing, I think, for Christians. No more searching, no more disappointment in failures. Salvation is found and secure in Jesus alone, and that frees us from our captivity to sin, to lives filled with joy in knowing and following Jesus. And finally, I think our story ultimately isn't about us. We picked up on it a bit before, but I think for us, especially in the West, we're really susceptible to thinking that the world resolves around me, that we are the centre of attention, that our stories are all about us, not even our family or the context we're in. Life is about me. And we can treat being a Christian like this too, that being a Christian is primarily about what I receive from God. And being disciples of Jesus, we receive a lot. We go from death to life, everlasting with God in glory, and we get to know and enjoy him forever with all of God's people. It's humongous. But our salvation and our stories ultimately aren't about us. Our salvation is declaring God's character and glory to the world. Anyone without Jesus is still dead and still facing God's wrath. And that means us declaring him to everyone around us is part of our lives living, honouring Jesus. Speaking the same gospel that saved us from death to life in Jesus. Being concerned about together making disciples is a core to us as church, as Christians. And it's this kind of glorious decoration, declaration that I think should be present every time we tell our stories about our salvation. Last year, I don't think I've said this before, um, I was having dinner with a guy I was reading the Bible with at university, and there's a guy next to us who heard us discussing the Bible and heard we were Christians, and he was really excited. He came around and had a chat, and it was one of those chats that lasted a long time, and he spent 10 minutes talking about how he became a Christian. Um, but it was only after he left, and me and my mate were discussing it afterwards, that we realised that during the whole conversation, this guy had never mentioned Jesus. It was all about how he changed and grew and came to realise and came to understand as a person. It wasn't about our God. Have you fallen into this before? Whether it's in the way you've told others about why you're a Christian or whether it's anything that you do in life, Every Christian has a story to tell, but that story isn't about us ultimately or even for us. When we tell our stories, people do get to know us better, but even more we hope that they should get to know even better our Lord and Saviour Jesus. They should be in awe of Jesus and his work as we tell it to the world around us. They should see how amazing God is. The new lives disciples are given are ones walking with Jesus in the good works he's prepared. And these whole lives should be shaped around the gospel and speaking and living it with people around us that they may bow at the glory of God and confess that Jesus is Lord. Our story is not primarily about ourselves. Our story is about a God that has saved us and is declaring his goodness to the world that they too might know him and bring glory to him. In the weeks to come, we're going to keep seeing more and more aspects 
of what being a disciple of Jesus is. But remember this week, the foundational start of what it looks like. The disciples are people saved by Jesus. Every disciple of Jesus has this same story. All disciples were dead in sin. All have been given salvation in Jesus by grace through faith for good works. It teaches us to see ourselves and the world rightly. It causes us to praise God in the way that he has worked in us and the world in this offer of salvation. And it causes us to walk today as his newly created people in confidence in all the works he has prepared for us, living for him and his glory. Let's pray that God would help us in all of this as we live as disciples of Jesus. Heavenly Father, we come to you as sinners deserving your wrath and judgment. Not one of us hasn't sinned against you. Not one of us hasn't spoken or thought a lie about you. But Father, in your great mercy and love and kindness, you have given salvation life to all with faith in Jesus. Father, help us not to forget who we were and who we are now only through the blood and life of Jesus. Help us to live as your new people, giving honour and glory to you in lives that walk with Jesus. Help us speak and share so that your glorious kindness would be on display to everyone around us. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.